Hey everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make and break your case. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Heimlich. And I'm John Risvold. And today we have a, a kind of a, an interesting topic because recently it's become applicable to any case you're going to handle. Defense medical experts, anything from an auto case to a construction case to a med mal case, the defense is going to hire an expert to dispute the causation and to try to minimize your damages, uh, no matter how big or small your case may be. John, I know you've been experiencing a lot of that recently on, on some of your auto cases in particular. Why don't you give us uh, an overview of kind of what these, who these uh, experts are and what they're trying to do? None of your clients are injured any longer, according to the defense bar. None of them. No matter how large or small the injury, no matter what the circumstances, it was not wrongfully caused and they're perfectly fine. They're all malingering or they all overtreated or the bills are all inflated or biomechanically speaking, the force of the impact was impossibly, you know, it was not enough to cause this uh, type of injury. I mean, I'm seeing everything in every kind of case. We just had a case. It was a smaller case in our office. And it was like $38,000 in medical. And one of the big insurance companies hired a well-known expert to contest the bills, a billing expert. And even she came back and said, well, 36 of it is related uh, to the crash and uh, totally fine. And so they knock off a, a two grand and then they hired a PM and R doc to say, oh, well, your client overtreated. Well, you know, the client's listening to the physician, the client's listening to whoever their treaters are doing what they're supposed to do. And so they're just, they're bordering on nonsensical at this point. There are instances where some of these experts are legit and there are cases where they are, you know, battle the experts cases, but a lot of these, you know, mid-size auto cases where you're seeing, you know, the run of the mill neurologist who has the same report that looks like the last report then looks like the report before it. And you pull six or seven cases that she's been on and all her reports are cut and paste. I'm seeing a lot of those. And I don't know if it's just the defense bar trying to uh, muddy the waters or if it's a temporary strategy, but it's become as we are emerging or getting onto the back end of the pandemic, this has become like the hot new thing. I don't know if they have like a DRI about it where, you know, they think that they can uh, hire experts and contest liability and contest causation effectively, but with no trials, it remains to be seen whether it'll be effective, but I'm seeing them all the time. Right. And, and some of the things that you need to consider, you know, once you get someone designated as an expert, first of all, do they have a report? And if they do, you know, read it through, read it in conjunction where the, with their disclosure and then figure out, do I actually need to take this expert's deposition? More and more, I'm seeing the utility in not taking experts' depositions, locking them into the opinions set forth in their disclosures or report. Uh, a lot of times I find them to be general. I find them to be vague. I find them to lack in a foundation. And I find them a lot of times, uh, especially in auto cases, for them to these experts be testifying things that are outside the scope of their expertise. So you need to figure out, you know, obviously it's a case by case basis, but you need to figure out do I need to take this deposition? Will it ultimately benefit me uh, to do so? Because a lot of these, especially in the auto cases, these are people that testify all the time. You know, they're pretty good at getting into their opinions when they're asked, or even if they're not asked, you know, they'll start talking about what their opinions are on a, on a given matter. And then all of a sudden you're giving them opening the door and allowing them to expound upon, add new opinions that they otherwise wouldn't be able to offer if you hadn't given uh, them the opportunity at the deposition. So uh, for me, that's kind of the first threshold question that I ask myself once an expert is designated is, you know, do I actually need to take this deposition? Will this help or hurt the case? I'm with you 100%. You know, more and more, I'm choosing not to depose defense experts. And it's not because of any sort of laziness or because I don't think I have the ability to go toe to toe with any of these experts. It's because exactly what you're describing. We have very, very strict expert disclosure rules in Illinois. And, you know, other jurisdictions have similar, but ours, I think, are really fantastic. And it's it's as simple as you as the lawyer have to disclose all the opinions of your expert and all the bases of those opinions. And if you don't do that and you don't do it well, your expert is hamstrung. You can get experts stricken because their disclosures are not you know, flushed out enough. They're not specific enough. In fact, there's a lot of really good case law in Illinois that says with 
Rule 213, which is the Supreme Court rule about expert disclosures, 213 F3, is that you have to, and I'm, I'm quoting from the Supreme Court of Illinois, you have to drop down to specifics. You can't just say the expert will talk about causation and how the crash didn't cause the traumatic brain injury. That's not enough. You have to say how, what's the basis? How did they come to this conclusion? What did they review? What are they looking at that the treating physicians aren't looking at or aren't relying on? What's the difference? And a lot of times you'll see very bare bones disclosures with no report. And when I see that, I think that's fantastic because if you take the deposition, the deposition becomes part of the disclosure. And so if you're not taking the deposition and they have a crappy disclosure and it's you know bare bones and it's horrible, sit tight and wait till trial. And then your motions and eliminate should be chock full of motions to bar these experts who have not, you know, properly disclosed or adequately disclosed their opinions. And oftentimes you can get some of these opinions stricken because you have no idea what they're going to say when they get on the stand because the defense lawyer didn't do their job. Oh, you're absolutely right. So what, if you decide to take the experts depositions, the next thing you're probably going to look at is their CV. You know, what, what are their degrees? What are their qualifications? You know, what have they published? If anything that may yeah. be relevant you know, what societies or organizations do they belong to? All that can provide some really good fodder for your examination, particularly with societies and organizations, because a lot of medical societies uh, have publications and guidelines that you can pull that most of them are publicly available, as well as ethics and bylaws, particularly about testifying. I know the American Medical Association has ethics and bylaws pertaining to uh, physician medical legal testimony. You know, the AMA and other organizations have publications and guidelines that you can definitely refer to and use during cross-examination. And if that expert is a member of that particular society or organization, you know, they're going to have a hard time saying, you know, well, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't apply to this case. In addition, you know, you figure out what their expertise is. You know, are they a, like you said, a neurologist and are they testifying about orthopedic issues? Are they an orthopedist and are they testifying about neurological issues? You know, you, a lot of times the defense wants to get, you know, use a, to cover the waterfront with one expert. You see that a lot. And a lot of times those experts ended up you know, reaching on their opinions, talking about things that they really don't have the foundation to be talking about, particularly, you know, in, you know, when they're going up against a treating physician who is uh, certified in that particular specialty. And, you know, again, that's another decision to make. Do you want to leave that opinion and just, you know, crush them with your treaters or do you want to try to get it out? But, you know, make sure you, you identify those particular issues and figure out, you know, if, how you want to approach it, you know, do you want to attack it? you know, during the deposition or try to undercut it and get it barred? Or do you want to leave it be and, you know, leave that as something for your cross at trial? I think people underestimate the value of the CV and the amount of information that's there. And so take, for instance, if you're listening to this podcast on your phone, you're holding in your hand every piece of knowledge in human history, easily accessible in a second. Look up whether or not this doctor actually works where they say they work go to the website, see if there are headshots there. You'd be surprised how often it's not there. It doesn't show up. And you get into a deposition and say, you know, you work at XYZ hospital. Well, not anymore. Okay. So you don't see patients anymore at all. No, you only do this work, right? You just get files from state farm or all state, and then you copy and paste the same opinion over and over and over, and then come into court and tell us all that our clients are faking it or lying or malingering or whatever it is. You know, you can find those things pretty easily. And the other thing you have to do is go check their license. Their license numbers are going to be on their CV. Go look up and see if their license is current, see if they've ever been disciplined. I mean, I did that in a case recently where the defense was using a treater as an expert. And my entire cross of him was, you were disciplined for falsifying records a year before you saw my client, right? Right. And so we have no idea whether or not these records are accurate, do we? And then he hemmed and hawed and stuttered. And that was the end of my cross. And they will never call that guy at trial. You'll never see him again. You'll never hear from him. And all I did was Google his name and look up his license. It's that simple. There's so much good stuff in the CV that you have to uh, start with there. I see so many transcripts because I'm the nerd that reads transcripts, right? Uh, I see so many transcripts that just say like, is this your CV? Is it current? Okay. And then just moves on into whatever the director of the cross is of this expert. And I think you're missing opportunities. Right. A lot of that's work done before you sit down to take the expert's deposition. There's a lot of homework to be done. 
And that's, you put in the work, you put in the effort and you really can unearth some really good things that's, that are going to help you and your client. The, another thing that you certainly should be doing prior to taking your expert's deposition is trying to figure out what other transcripts are out there. You know, is this a frequent flyer expert? You know, talk to the people at your bar association, talk to your friends, talk to your colleagues, you know, see what else is out there. A lot of these experts, you know, someone likes them and then they get used all the time, particularly on the defense side with some of the larger insurance companies. So odds are, if someone's been designated, there's going to be a lot of transcripts out there. So figure out, you know, do they have common practices? Do they come to the same conclusion on every case, no matter what the facts are? Is it, you know, a cut and paste kind of report that they're offering, you know, compare it to others, things that you can find out there. And I think if you can expose that, if you can expose those kinds of practices, you know, to a jury, if you can put, you know, and I saw this done once very effectively, uh, a table was laid out and stacks of transcripts as high as you could possibly imagine and stacks of reports as just on just feet, feet off the table. You know, just saying like you came to the same conclusion in this case, in that case, in the other case, and your report looks exactly the same. And you call out the game, you know, that this expert's playing. I mean, that really resonates. That's going to score you big points and it's going to lead, you know, to them, you know, to discrediting your expert. You do that in front of a jury. It's going to do a world of good for you. Yeah, I feel like a broken record when I say this, but I think I think the most important thing in front of a jury is credibility credibility of the witnesses, the the court and the attorneys, you know, so if you're acting unprofessionally, you're going to lose credibility. If you're lying, you're going to lose credibility. If you can show that the credibility of the expert witness is shaky, the jury's automatically going to be distrustful of them. They're already distrustful of lawyers. They're already distrustful of the process. And so you can use that to your advantage with some of these experts and show that these experts are not credible, that they are just hired, you know, guns to come in and say whatever they need to say to get their paycheck. And I think that that can be really, really effective in front of a jury. The minute they lose credibility, it's over for them. Right. And that kind of segues into the next area that you really need to explore. And a lot of this uh, information can be requested directly from the expert with a, within your deposition rider. You know, you got to have a nice, thorough, comprehensive deposition rider trying to get as much information to them as possible. And two of the areas you really need to probe are their finances. You know, how much are they making from their medical legal work? You know, is it a couple thousand dollars a year? Is it $10,000? Is it a hundred? Is it 500? You know, because all that's going to make a difference. And then are they, do they split evenly as far as advocating for uh, plaintiffs versus defendants? You know, are they all defense all the time? You know, are, are they, you know, 50-50? Again, that, that, that goes to credibility as well. And, and that's something that you're going to want to know and need to know. Again, that goes to the, the weight, the credibility, and how a jury is potentially going to perceive that expert. A lot of these experts don't want to give up that information. They don't want to tell you how much they make or how much of their income as a percentage even is from medical legal testimony. They want to be able to sort of hide in the weeds and say that they're treating physicians and they're just trying to do the right thing because they think all of us plaintiff's lawyers are greedy. The one thing I will say about deposition testimony is that if you're not getting this information from your rider, if you're not, if you send out the subpoena to the expert and it comes back and you're not getting the income information uh, and you can't find it in other transcripts, that is a really good reason to take a very truncated deposition to find out these sort of bias issues. But you know, you want to be careful that you're not exposing. Your, you know, yourself to the expert allowing themselves to expound upon opinions. But that's very, very important information. If you find out that this expert is just a person who only does medical legal work and they don't do any real hands-on patient care, that I think is going to resonate with a jury because your treaters are going to testify to causation. Your treaters actually laid hands on your, on your client as a patient and have actually examined them and seen them. And this doctor hasn't seen anything except a summary of the medical records that someone in their office did or someone at the insurance company gave them. They're not reading thousands of pages of medical records. They're not reading hardly anything. They're getting summaries of all this stuff given to them so they can formulate their opinions. So you need to find out you know, how much they're making, how much of it is you know, part of that bias one side or the other. Before we jump into that next part that you brought up there, I did want to kind of hit on one more point. You also want to explore, you know, in addition to their testifying history in general, their prior and current work for the firm they're being retained by. 
you know, I think that's a very ripe area and because, you know, once you get to know someone, and this is true for anybody, I mean, I'm as guilty of this as anybody else. You find an expert that you like, you want, you want their opinion on a given case. And I know that, that there was an expert that I had used in the past, you know, for both plaintiffs and defense cases. And the, the best criticism of him that I heard from anybody, because no one could get him really on the merits of what he was saying, was that, you know, when, when this firm needs an opinion, they go to the well and they call Dr. So-and-so. And Dr. So-and-so's, you know, whether it's for the plaintiff, whether it's for the defense, Dr. So-and-so's there. And, and he's going to advocate for them. You know, and while, while they couldn't get him on the medicine, while they couldn't get him on, on the merits of what he was saying, I thought, you know, I was, when I sat back down after the examination was over, I thought that that is by far the most effective critique of what uh, my expert was offering. And it's something that, you know, people should be aware of and people should definitely explore when an expert gets designated. Yeah, I really like that. I think it's a really smart way to attack the credibility of an expert to say, well, they might as well just be working in your office at this point, right? Do you, do you have an office set aside for them so that they can do all this work for you? This is the, what, the 11th case that they testified for you. Uh, that works really well with some of these big carriers too, because you know, you'll know you see the, the same names that are the captive counsel for State Farm, Allstate, whoever. And I know I pick on those guys a lot, but they deserve it. You know, you'll see the captive counsel, you know, those names, so you know, like these five firms are all Allstate firms, right? So you can just check all of them off and say, well, this is the insurance company that paid for, you know, your last vacation, right? This is the insurance company that pays your mortgage. And you're in here trying to tell us that my client's lying. I, I you can tell as I'm talking about this, that I find uh, a lot of what these defense experts say, especially in auto cases to be incredulous and ridiculous and almost an affront to the whole system. But there are really easy ways to expose that and really easy ways to sort of turn it on its head and get some easy points. One of them is exactly the way that you describe it. Another one is what did you actually review? You didn't read this transcript, did you? You didn't see these medical records, did you? I had an expert on stand the last trial I tried, and he said, it's important to have all the facts. And that was one of the last things he said in direct. And then in cross, I got up and I showed him a blow up of one of our exhibits. I said, you've never seen this, have you? No, this is an email that says that there's a dangerous condition on the property that needs to be fixed. And it was sent a month before my client fell on that same dangerous condition. That would change your opinion, wouldn't it? Actually, yes, it would. And then we were off to the races right? Because he hadn't seen uh, the smoking gun in the case. He hadn't seen a key piece of information and he had formulated his entire opinion sort of with blinders on. And so even on the stand, he was either forced to lie, you know, to the jury, which they can see or to fold. And I think you can create those opportunities just by finding out in your rider, what did you actually look at and review? What are the actual bases of your opinion? So that's an incredibly important thing. What what they haven't seen is obviously much more important than what they have, because if they if they haven't seen something like you just talked about, you know, that could be the difference in, in their opinion and it could change everything. In addition to what they've seen, you know, th- there's often the issue of if your client is, you know, alive at that point, did they examine your client? You know, if they didn't, you gotta you gotta find out why not. You know, was it it's not important to examine your client? You know, I've three treating physicians testifying who saw my client collectively 65 times, you know, and if they did exam, examine your client, you know, talk with your client, find out how the exam went, you know, and make sure you point out, you know, during your examination of the expert that this expert is, has no responsibility for the well-being of your client. There's no real physician patient relationship between the expert and your client. And another tip, you know, which I think is a great thing to do if your uh, client is going to sit for a physical exam with a defense expert, send him to his treating physician before and after. You know, compare That's and a great contra- point. compare and contrast that with what the expert says. You know, a week before, have him go to the doctor for a checkup. You know, have him do a thorough exam, see how he's doing, have him make a note, and then the week after, have him go back to the doctor and and have that note too. You know, and then see where the, where the differences lie. I, I think you'll be amazed at how different those things can be, the conclusions that are come to, the diagnoses that are made. And you can really use that to, you know, again, explicitly show where the bias lies and how that can affect, you know, how a, a medical doctor, even one in the same specialty, you know, will view your client and your client's injuries. I really like that idea. Another thing that I've seen employed effectively and you'll usually need a court order for it is you want to be able to videotape 
the exam that the defense expert does of your client. And if you can't videotape it, try to have some sort of, you know, medical expert there of your own, whether it be your own expert or you have a in-house nurse or you hire a nurse or you hire somebody with some sort of expertise or background to understand whether or not the examination that's being conducted is actually a legitimate examination or whether they're sort of fudging the facts. I think it's really, really important. You'll need the court's intervention nine times out of 10. I can't imagine a defense lawyer is just going to say, yeah, sure, no problem. Come on in. But if you get that court order, that can shut down the entire exam pretty quickly or delegitimize the exam that's already illegitimate. It's extremely important. You know, you got to make sure that everything is above board and everything is disclosed. You know, that's really the nature of this whole thing is it's supposed to be an open and fair process. And, you know, you got to make sure that that's what actually occurs. So, you know, let's say you, you, you've gotten, you sent out your DEP rider, you have their complete file, you've got the billing records, you've got the financial information, you've got the correspondence relating to the case, you have whatever they're relying on, whether it be records, journals, articles, you got their testifying history. Now, you know, it's time to prepare for the deposition. You're, you're getting your outline going. You know, most important thing in my mind when you're preparing your outline for the deposition is what is the goal? You know, what is the goal of this deposition? Are you trying to lock in or limit opinions? Are you trying to undercut opinions? Or are you trying to outright disqualify this expert? Because that's going to kind of change how you approach, you know, the various aspects of it. So figure out what exactly it is you want to do and then tailor that outline accordingly. You know, if you want to lock in and limit opinions, you know, you just want to you know, close them off about what they can and what they can't testify about. You know, if you want to undercut opinions, you're going to be attacking the bases. You're going to be just like John said, you're going to be like, well, you didn't see this information. Had you seen this and you saw this information, you would have done something different. You would have, your opinions would change, right? Or if you want to flat out disqualify the expert, you know, you're going to say this is outside your scope. You know, you are not qualified to render this opinion, you know, after going through the requisite foundation. So there, there's a couple different goals you know, that you want to achieve when you decide to take that depth and make sure that your examination is targeted and focused on those goals. I agree hundred percent. I think if I had to rank them in order, I want to go to disqualify first. If, if I can knock out this expert somehow, some way, I want to do it and I want to do it quickly in a deposition. If I can't, I want to, you know, lock them up and limit their opinions. I personally very rarely go to number three, sort of the discredit and attack the opinions. That's all trial stuff for me. I don't want them to see my hand. I want to hold that close to the vest. But to your point, if you can disqualify them simply by laying the foundation and saying, you're an orthopedic surgeon, you don't, you know, do neuropsych evaluations. You have no idea whether or not this person actually sustained a traumatic brain injury. For instance, you don't do that. You're a spine surgeon right? You're not a neurologist. You're not a neuropsychologist. You're not a PM&R doctor. You're not somebody who would have that sort of expertise or background. You're not a neuroradiologist, are you? No? Okay. And that that alone might be enough. You don't always have to get sort of a knockout punch in the deposition. The knockout punch can come with your argument in the motion eliminate by saying, look, this is the opinion they rendered. They're wholly unqualified. They've never published an article about this. They've never really offered this opinion before in court, or it's never they've never been qualified as an expert to offer this opinion and it's outside the scope. And if you can just show those things and set them up in the deposition without really showing the expert or the defense lawyer what you're doing, you know, by being calculated and being very meticulous about your planning and being very well thought out and planned out in advance and having practiced and having, you know, dry ran all of these questions and, and sort of your crosses, you can disqualify at least portions of expert opinions more often than you would think. Yeah. So the first thing I'm looking to do once the deposition begins is, you know, show them their report, show them their disclosure, and just confirm that all of their opinions are contained within this document, that there aren't other opinions we didn't talk about. Again, you're kind of opening the door at that point, but you need to kind of explore that area. Once you're taking the depth, you got to rein them in, narrow the scope as much as you can, confirm that all opinions are in the disclosure. And, and and confirm that the conclusions that they made are not facts, they're opinions. I know that seems, you know, simple and, but again, this is, this is for the jury. It's not for you. It's not for an opposing counsel, but you want to confirm that the conclusions are not facts, they're opinions, the, the films, the records, the depositions, those are the facts. 
And these are these are this expert's particular opinions based on the facts. And you know, another expert could come to a different conclusion based on those same facts. So you got to just you know make sure that you differentiate fact from opinion. Then you got to ask what their role is. You know, you've been retained by the expert. Are you a professional witness? Are you on the defense team? You know, and then contrast that with their ethical obligations pursuant to, you know, the medical groups that they're probably a part of, pursuant to the American Medical Association or the, you know, whatever specialty they happen to be. And just, you know, kind of point that out and make that clear to the jury that, you know, they may be straying from what they're supposed to be doing, you know, as an ethical doctor by testifying the way that they are in this particular case. Just put that out there, you know, and then go through what they did to prepare. Sometimes you'll be surprised that, that the answer is I just looked at my report and then I showed up. Yeah. That's, that's the answer. A lot of times is I read over my report again. Uh, and then I talked to my lawyer and then I showed up and that's it. You're right about the first part. And I think it's really important. I think we can lose sight of that very quickly. These are just opinions. They're not hard facts. They are not, you know, the facts of the case. They are these experts opinions. And, you know, I've said this repeatedly, you've said this repeatedly, like, don't open the door to allow them to expound upon their opinions and to, you know, create new opinions, but you have to crack the door a little bit and you have to sort of poke and test and prod and see the outer limits of what their opinions are. And you can do that carefully. It is an art, not a science. It takes practice. It's not something you're going to be able to do your first time very well, probably. I know I didn't the first time I took an expert deposition. I'm sure it didn't go as well as the last time I took an expert deposition, but you're right. You have to test those boundaries and see, but I really, really like the idea of using their own organizations and their own societies and the things that they've agreed to publicly with their peers to a certain set of facts or rules, using those against them at at trial or even in a deposition, because a lot of times the way that they're required to formulate their opinions or the way that they have formulated their opinions is in direct violation of these things. And so they have to make a choice there in front of a jury. Are they going to be strictly ethical or are they going to take the pay and take the money and run? And you know, you can create that dichotomy and then you get up in closing argument and say, you heard Dr. Smith Dr. Smith was paid 10 grand to come in here and lie to you. And I mean, obviously don't say something like that. It's objectionable and you're going to get your verdict thrown out, but you make that claim and make that case by pointing out, look, they violated their own rules. They violated their own standards. And it's just like any other rules of the road kind of thing, right? If you're in any other, a nursing home case or a trucking case or some sort of regulated industry, you have your rules. Experts are the same way. Like they have their outside rules. They have, you know, we have our own rules that they're bound by and you can use the rules to your benefit provided you know them and you know how to use them and you know the case law and you know exactly what their background is. There's just a lot of work that needs to be done before you ever set foot in that deposition. But if you, if you do all that work, the harder you work, the luckier you're, you're going to get in the deposition and at trial. To, to paraphrase the great Keith Mitnick, are you a paid persuader or are you a, you know, an educator, let the chips fall where they may, you know, and, and you got to find that out. And that's really what it's all about. And that's, what's going to matter to the jury. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, once, and this is something I, I particularly a fan of because I love talking about this in opening, you know, what are your areas of agreement with the defense expert, despite everything that we just talked about? And it may be as simple as was the client injured because of the fall, because of the wreck, you know, is you may disagree about what the injury is, you know, and that's certainly, you know, common, you know, but was the client in fact injured because of the wreck, because of the fall? And believe it or not, I mean, that, that can send you on totally different paths with your deposition, because if she says, if the expert says no, I mean, that's a whole different thing. Then, then you can go into malingering. You can go into, you know, you're not an expert on malingering. You're not an expert on this. You're not a psychologist. You know, you, that, that's a whole different line of questioning. And if you get to yes, then, you know, you get to get up and opening and say, listen, everyone agrees that this wreck caused an injury. We're all here today because my client was hurt because of this wreck. The only disagreement that we have is the injury that was sustained. You know, this expert is going to claim it's a sprain strain to resolve within weeks to months. And my, and my treating physicians, you know, heard the people who actually see her day in and day out are going to say it's something very different from that. 
you know, and, but you got to start with that basic, simple premise. And once you get there, you know, it can really takes that, you know, because obviously everyone's skeptical of you and your client showing up and asking for money. They think, you know, that they've bought into a lot of juries, you know, they bought in, bought into those things where, you know, there's a lot of frivolous lawsuits out there. And, and once you say, everyone agrees that there's an injury caused by this crash that goes out the window and now your credibility is established and now your client's credibility is established. And then it just becomes an argument over, okay, what are the injuries? You know, how much it needs to be awarded ultimately at the end, but you got to start there. And I think that's absolutely critical and something you definitely need to highlight very early on in the deposition. hundred percent. The best thing I think you can say in opening, and you said it a couple of times in what you were just saying, everyone agrees. Now the jury agrees because everyone agrees. Everyone agrees X. Everyone agrees Y. Well, now the jury has, doesn't have to think about it anymore. Oh, everybody agrees. Well, I agree with that. Okay. That makes sense. And you're right. The system outside of the courtroom has conditioned the billions of dollars that are spent to do this, have conditioned everyday people to believe that most lawsuits are frivolous, that they aren't justified, and that people are just trying to look for a payday or you know their lottery win or whatever else. And so when you can get up and say, well, everybody agrees my client is injured. Okay, well, now we're just talking about how injured are they? Everyone agrees the defendant is at fault for this crash. He admitted it in his deposition. He's going to admit it on the stand that he you know, caused this T-bone collision, right? And now you don't really have to talk about liability. You don't really have to to really hammer liability as much. It becomes a damages case. And so that phrase is something that you need to seek out and find when you're working with experts. Find those points, lock them up, hammer them home, and use them from the get-go. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The the next thing that I, I really like to do, again, to have that really nice, make that nice argument opening, is contrast the expert with your treaters or your experts, if you had to hire them, you know, what are the specialties? You know, you read Dr. So-and-so's step. He's a board certified orthopedic surgeon, isn't he? Oh yeah, he sure is. You also read, you know, Dr. So-and-so who is a uh, pain management doctor, right? Okay. Yes. And, and that's, that's not your specialty. That's outside of the scope, right? You know, and, and you kind of just have them qualify your treaters and have them testify that these are people who are licensed in different specialties that are related to the injuries that your clients suffered and that their opinions are based on how much, and talk about how many times they saw the patient. You know, my orthopedic surgeon, Dr. So-and-so, the orthopedic surgeon saw the patient, you know, 17 times or however many it did. And the PM&R and the, the, the pain management doctor, the pain management doctor saw, you know, him once a month for two and a half years after the accident, right? You know, have them qualify your experts and speak or your your treaters, and have them speak to the amount of uh, contact they had with your client that this this expert undoubtedly did not. You know, because usually they examine them one time or zero times in all likelihood. Right. So you definitely want to talk about that. You know, talk about how they weren't hired to help the patient. You know, that you the treaters you go see a treating physician because it was recommended to you. And you need medical treatment. They're there to help. This expert obviously is not. That's not their job. Their job is, in fact, to, I wouldn't say do the opposite, but it's to limit, you know, and kind of call into question, you know, what is actually related to whatever injury you're claiming. And so that's a very important thing to kind of, you know, talk about their purpose in the case versus your treater's purpose in the case. Um, yeah, I absolutely like the idea of having them qualify your treaters. And one of the ways that I've found to do that, that I like a lot and that works really well is to simply say, you know, you read the deposition of Dr. Jones and that, di- you know, Dr. Jones is a board certified orthopedic surgeon. You read that deposition, right? Right. And you found, uh, you relied on that deposition informing your opinions and that deposition was reliable informing your opinions. Now, you can get up and say, because they're going to say yes to that. They relied on it and it's reliable. Now you can get up and say, even their expert agrees that our treating physician's testimony is reliable because they relied on informing their own opinions. Their opinions are paid to be something different, but 
even they agree that the doctors you're going to hear from are reliable. And the jury automatically thinks, again, everyone agrees. So I must agree. And I think that's a really easy way to add credibility to your treaters. I think that's a really good idea. Yeah. And then the next place I like to take it, you know, presuming that the uh, expert has a clinical practice and they're seeing patients on a regular basis, which they aren't always, as you talked about before, but presuming that they are, you know, and, and presuming that they are questioning the veracity of the complaints that your, that your client is making, you know, they're saying either they're, oh, they're exaggerating, they're malingering, they're over-treating, whatever it may be you know, or, or pain is subjective, which is always a fun thing. We'll get into a little bit later, you know, you know, you can ask them, you know, do you question the veracity or source of the complaints you receive from your patients? And if so, under what circumstances, you know, and, and have put the ball in their court because they're, they're making this claim about your client, usually based on, again, one examination or zero based on a review of medical records, you know, and, and based on very little else. And so, you know, but they're calling your client's credibility into question. So in what circumstances as an actual treating physician, assuming that they are a treating physician under some circumstances, do they do that? And, you know, the answer, again, the answers may surprise you, you know, it, it could be, it could be anything. So just make sure you find that out and, you know, put their credibility on trial because they're putting your client's credibility on trial. So put theirs you know, out there and, and see what you can do with that. Absolutely. You know, and, and then there's, you know, the medical aspect of these cases. And again, this is something I generally don't like to dwell on unless I absolutely have to, because A, it validates their status as an expert. You know, you don't necessarily want to do that, particularly again, if they're talking outside the scope of what they should be talking about rightfully, you know, you don't want to give them the credibility to say, oh, you know, this didn't cause neurological, you know, this didn't cause neurological issues and here's why, you know, they shouldn't be talking about that in the first place if they're not qualified to do so. And, you know, that, that's something I try to avoid at all costs. I mean, sometimes, you know, standard of care experts, you know, medical malpractice case, obviously you got to get into it. But other than that, I try to not argue the medicine, argue the medicine with a doctor is generally a losing concept. Yeah. I've seen it play out at trial a few times and all it does is give the expert credibility, even if it's deserved credibility. I mean, the last one of the last cases I tried, the defense attorney got up and he went way beyond the scope of direct. And I let him do it because he was arguing the medicine with my doctor. My doctor was just kicking him and just kicking yeah. him over and over again. And I was like, this is great. I'll let him do this all day. And we asked the jury about it afterwards. They're like, I didn't understand any of that, but it was very impressive. That's what they said. Yeah, right. They said, that was very, you know, I was very impressed with the way your doctor handled everything. Uh, I didn't understand a word. It made no difference to me whatsoever, but it showed that your doctor knew exactly what he was talking about in my mind, even though I didn't understand anything that was actually being said. So don't do that. that that's my advice. Don't do that. <laughs> Agree. Um, Agree. That's one of the best pieces of advice I got as a young lawyer when it came to experts was learn the medicine and then never argue the medicine with the expert, especially when we're talking about depositions and trial, of course, but I agree with you hundred percent. It's a losing battle. Now lock them into what their opinions are based on their review of the med, you know, review of the medical and everything else, lock them into those medical causation opinions, which is why you have to know the medicine and have to be able to understand it and speak about it but don't argue with them about it. The MRI didn't show X, Y, Z, did it? Well, as a matter of fact, if you look at this film here and now you're dead, now it's over, right? You can kill your own case by arguing the medicine. So I'm hundred percent with you. I think that that is just rope that you use to hang yourself. The next thing that you really want to do with these defense medical experts is really just gut the general legal defenses that opposing counsel is going to make to your case. You know, obviously one of the biggest ones is you know, the person's prior medical issues or that, you know, they had a degenerative condition that was going to inevitably lead to them being in pain or them being having disability or debility or whatever they want to do. And really you can counter this through, in most cases, just through basic common sense. You know, they weren't in pain to this particular area of the body the day before the crash, or even if they were, they had some chronic degenerative, chronic spine pain you know, they were seeing the Cairo once a month, you know, they weren't seeing an orthopedic surgeon. They weren't going to a pain management doctor. They weren't getting shots. You know, none of this treatment that your client has gone through after the accident was ever contemplated 
before the accident. You know, have them confirm that trauma can exacerbate these pre-existing conditions. You know, you can have a degenerative degeneration in your spine, but it wasn't symptomatic until the car wreck. Right. You know, have them confirm that, you know, and, and also have them confirm that, you know, we can disagree on what the diagnosis is, but the wreck caused the pain and the pain led to the treatment. Yes. You know, and once they confirm that all of a sudden you have a causal link between the wreck and the treatment, whether they agree the treatment's related or not, they've already established that because the, again, point out the absurdity of the alternative. The alternative is the crash is just a big coincidence, right? You know, they were going to the Cairo once a month, they have this car wreck. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, just magically, just coincidentally, you know, now they need a pain management doctor. Now they're getting shots. Now they're getting injections. You know, and the crash is just, it's just a happenstance. You know, it doesn't really, there's no causal relationship. Super, I mean, it's super weird. Explo- exploit and expose the absurdity of their positions just by common sense and just basic, basic stuff without, again, not getting into the hairy little details of the medicine can be a really effective tool in exposing these experts, you know, for what they're, what they're trying to do in this trial, which is discredit your client without a, a, a adequate basis. I think this is especially true in spine cases. I think that you can do this very, very effectively in spine cases. It starts with knowing what the jury instructions in the great state of Illinois say. And part of that is we're an eggshell plaintiff state, which means that if there's an exacerbation of a pre-existing condition that you cannot reduce the plaintiff's recovery because their pre-existing condition was exacerbated. But the jury instruction also has some really sweet language that everyone forgets that says if they have a condition that leaves them more susceptible to injury. And you will get a lot of doctors to agree with you that conditions like a listhesis leave somebody more susceptible to future injury or future pain with trauma. And you will get them to agree to this over and over and over. And then you get a spondylolisthesis case and the defense is, well, that's a pre-existing condition. Yes. Yes, it is. That's a hundred percent. You're right. I had no argument, but it was an A, you know, it was a, not a painful condition. And following trauma, it became painful. And your doctor, my doctor, all the doctors say that following a trauma, that condition can become painful. Well, weird. That's what happened here. What a coincidence. Those sorts of things, the susceptibility part of it, I think gives you a lot of leverage and a lot of opportunity to also take the defense expert's opinion and mold it into something very useful for you because the medicine is what the medicine is. You have to learn it. You need to learn it and you can use it without getting into the fine detail, right? You're not arguing the medicine anymore. You're stating a fact, an objective fact. You're not saying my, my client's particular case was this and became that instead, what you're saying is this particular known condition is a preexisting condition. We'll all agree. Right. But it can be not painful. And then it can become painful if they're, if they're in a trauma of some sort, right? And a car crash is a trauma on your spine, isn't it? Our bodies aren't designed for that. Are they? No, no, of course not. And there you go. Right. And then you get your pre-existing instruction and you just have to educate the jurors as to what the law is in closing argument. Yeah. We we are lucky to practice in the state with some good jury instructions on those particular issues that are so common, uh, particularly in car wreck cases. Another defense that you hear often is that your client underwent unnecessary treatment. You know, that this these symptoms resolved or, you know, whatever they're saying. They're saying the treatment was unnecessary. It went above and beyond what the actual needs were. And your client is basically just, inf- basically saying your client is inflating or attempting to inflate the value of their case through this treatment. You know, and again, another, a good way to expose the, what I'll call flaw in that argument is to, you know, take it to its most extreme. You know, are, are you saying that the doctors, therapists, chiropractors that performed this treatment were committing malpractice and billing fraud? I mean, see what their answer is to that question. The answer is going to be like, well, no, I, I can't say that. I, I can't. If that was truly your opinion, wouldn't you be required to report it as an ethical doctor? You know, and, and the answer is that they're never going to answer that question. They're never going to give you a straightforward answer because the answer is, well, that's just their opinion. You know, they're not yeah. treating the patient. They're paid to have that opinion. And again, it'll expose that to the jury and the jury will come to more often than not the correct conclusion. You know, once they hear 
you know, what they should be doing if they really truly in their heart believe that that was what was going on. Yeah. The flip side of that coin too, is you're telling this jury that my client should have just ignored their doctors. The doctors prescribed this treatment, didn't they? Like this doctor referred my client to PT and the physical therapist did an evaluation, came up with a plan. And that plan was 12 weeks long instead of eight weeks long. And you're saying that my client should have just quit early. She should have just ignored it and walked away. That's your testimony, right? She over-treated. She treated too much. She tried to be too healthy and tried to get too much better. Those, those sorts of arguments, I think, are just absolutely absurd. And you can expose the absurdity very quickly. So do make sure you expose the absurdity of it. Sure. Another thing that you hear a lot from experts is they try to dismiss anything that can be perceived as subjective. You know, they always want objective findings on, on diagnostics and, and they do this particularly with, with pain. You know, they talk about how pain is a subjective complaint. You know, everyone experiences it differently, you know, and therefore it's not something that we can really rely upon, you know, as a basis for awarding substantial damages. You know, and and in my opinion, a, a great way to get that person to really own up to their lack of knowledge about pain is it's just are you an expert in the biology of pain? And and if you're never going to get a good answer to that question, you you never are because none of these experts who testify in these kind of cases are, and and that's a very because pain is a very it's the oldest medical condition in the world. You know, it's a very right. complicated question. And, you know, everyone, and, they, and it's true, everyone does experience it differently. So, you know, expose that aspect of the case and then ask them, you know, wouldn't a reasonably careful doctor, would a reasonably careful doctor ignore complaints of pain from their patient? Would they just ignore it and dismiss it out of hand? Because, you know, they may have a, some sort of suspicion that maybe this isn't, you know, their pain levels really at a two when they're telling me it's a seven, you know, just again, expose what they're doing, call out the game and you will be rewarded. Any of us that have read medical records know they break down sort of like this history, subjective, objective impression plan, right? Ask the expert, why do you take a history? Why do you get that? Where do you get it? Do you get it from the patient or from other records? What is this section subjective? What is that for? But you're here telling us that none of that matters, that the history and the subjective that are subjectively from the client, they're the one telling you all of these things. None of that's relevant. Why do you do it? What's the purpose? And just watch them flail like a you know fish out of water. They have to now explain why the thing that's in every medical record is irrelevant. Why do it? If it doesn't matter, why document it? If you didn't document it, that would be malpractice. And I'm not going to go that far, right? But that's, it would be. And so they have to try to justify explaining it away. And there's not a good way to do that. Another thing that you're going to hear often from experts on the defense side is, you know, if your client stopped treating for a while, or there was a gap in treatment for one reason or another, they're going to use, try to use that as evidence. Oh, your clients, the injury, uh, the injury resolved, you know, nothing to see here, you know, Maybe up until the date the, the gap started, maybe that was related. But, you know, if they picked up treatment later on, you know, that torn rotator cuff that they discovered later on an MRI, that, was, that has nothing to do with the accident or the fall, you know, again, and this is something you need to talk about with your client beforehand and have them testify to at their deposition, but have them talk about why, why did you stop going to treatment? And, and you'll find out it's because people go to treatment because they want to get better because they want a cure, they want a fix. I mean, and talk about all the things that go into just going to the therapist's office for rehab, you know, three times a week. You know, you got to get in your car, you got to drive all the way across town, you got to park, you got to go into the office, you got to sit, you got to wait for your turn, you got to do your exercises, you know, then you got to get, you know, get back in your car, drive away all the way back across town to your job. And you got to do that again, two days later. And if you're not getting any improvement from those, what is your incentive to keep going? You know, there's a reason why people stop going to treatment. And a lot of the times it's because they're not getting any better. It's not because the problem's gone away. It's not because, oh, they're cured. It's because, it's, it, in fact, it's the opposite. It's because they're not cured. It's because they've decided to try to move on with their life. 
And you can try to expose that through your examination of the defense medical expert. In addition to obviously you got to get your client to you get on board and testify the same way, but you know, that's something that you can get into, have them walk through all this, the things that go into, like I said, just going to one therapy appointment and repeat that, you know, however many times your client had to go, you know, and that takes a toll. That's, that's exhausting. I mean, that, and especially if you're not getting anything out of it. So make sure you explore that with the expert as well. And if you think that the gap in treatment argument is going away, well, buckle up, everybody, because we just had a year-long gap in everybody's treatment. No one is regularly and consistently treating the way that they did prior to March of 2020. They just aren't. I have clients who I know need surgery, who need injections, who just aren't getting those things done because they don't want to risk their health right? Having a surgery makes you at higher risk for the complications associated with a pandemic. And so they don't want to take that risk. And that's understandable. And you might have an out for some juror, you know, you might be able to explain that away to some jurors, but there is a contingent in this country that believes this is all nonsense and that it's not going to be enough for them. So this defense is going to carry some water and you have to be able to use your clients, you know, subjective and objective testimony to say, why didn't you treat? Well, I wasn't getting any better. And then, you know, this happened and we all got locked in our homes and we, you know, were locked down for whatever. And then I just stopped and I never picked it back up. I didn't think about it. Are you still in pain? Yeah, I'm still in pain. Of course I am. I'm in pain every day and it's horrible. And I wish it would go away. And I never had it before this crash and before, you know, this all happened. And I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in court. I don't want to be in front of a jury. I want to be home and I want to feel better. And if you can get your client to say things like that, which are all true, you're going to be able to explain away these gaps in treatment, but otherwise they can be, they can be pretty deadly. I mean, they're, they're snake bites sometimes. Yeah, that, that is really a tough one. And you need to approach that with caution and really make sure that your client uh, is doing it, yeah, him or herself a service by, you know, explaining why it is that the treatment stopped at a given point. And th- the, the, this last, I'd say a uh, very common opinion that you hear from a lot of these defense experts. You know, last but not least, I would say is that the injury just resolved. You know, this was a sprain strain. These resolve in weeks to months. And then as of a certain day, you know, we'll call it three months out from the accident just for, you know, to give the client, you know, a little bit of leeway. Any pain and debility after three months from the from the accident is unrelated. You know, that's part of some degenerative process. It's you know, malingering, whatever it is. It's just, it doesn't really matter what it is because it's not part of the accident. You're going to hear that over and over and over. And again, that, that's a common sense argument. You don't really need to get in the medicine about that. Same pain, same area. You know, they went to sleep one day with that pain to that area and it was related to the accident. They woke up the next day with that same pain to the same area, but it's unrelated. I mean, point, point that out over and over and over again. It's not going to stop the defense from putting it out there. You know, they're going to say, you know, the nature of these injuries is a weeks to months resolution, you know, but just point out the absurdity of it all and, you know, just hammer it home that, you know, this is not, that that's just not how things work. You know, make sure that the jury knows that and make that clear. I see this in every TBI case, every single one of them. Your client didn't have a concussion because she didn't say that she had a concussion in the emergency room. And so there wasn't one. She just had a sprain strain and then she had some physical therapy and then she got better. She did. She probably didn't even need all the physical therapy that she had. She did six weeks of it and she really only needed two. And she doesn't have any concussion or post-concussive syndrome or mild traumatic brain injury or anything like that. This is where knowing the literature, knowing the medicine, being able to use it is effective, right? So using TBI as an example, 56% of TBI aren't properly diagnosed in an emergency room. So that opinion is garbage and you can immediately destroy it, right? But you have to know the literature and you have to know the medicine if you're going to move beyond the, the very logical conclusion, which is like you said, they had this, they didn't have this pain before the incident, before the accident, before the trauma. Now they have it. Now it's all the time and every day. It isn't gone. Whether it should or should have, should or should not have resolved is not an issue, right? This person is not the lab rat of what should or should not have happened. It's an actual human being that is in pain and is suffering. And whether or not it did resolve is the issue. And it has not resolved. And the, exactly your point. They went to bed with it. They woke up with it. You know, Monday is no different than Sunday. If you say the cutoff is Sunday, but they still have it on Monday, they still have it. And if they tell you objectively 
that they still have this today, then they still have it. And then you can sort of argue with the expert and say, well, you believe that this, this, and this is related to the crash. I mean, you said so in your report, right? But they still have this, this, and this. They still have chronic headaches. They still have neck pain. They still have a herniated disc at C4-5. They have all those things still, don't they? Yeah. And all those were things you said were related, right? Right. But suddenly, you know, in the middle of May, six weeks after the crash, all those things are better. Explain that physiology to me. I mean, it's a little bit of theater. It's a little bit of sort of like the, the law and order moment where you like ask the, the asshole question and then you withdraw it, which I've been admonished by judges for doing, but it, it plays, it plays really well for the jury and it exposes the sort of deceptive defense practice that we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, have them give them an outside date, have them say, okay, no treatment beyond this date or no symptoms beyond this date certain is related. And then that really, again, pointing out the absurdity of all highlighting that particular issue and locking them into an opinion, it's really going to benefit you again, trial is theater. So you need to have, you know, that, that, that moment, you need to have, you know, a nice clean cutoff date to really highlight the absurdity of, of that whole line of opinion again. And you see it over and over and over. It's not going away. Anyone who's practicing in this area out there is going to see it. Uh, they have seen it. They will see it again. So, you know, the, learn how to deal with it, you know, try to expose it for what it is and, you know, just lock them in as, as best you can. Yeah. There's a reason why some of the best jury consultants in the world are uh, from a theater background, like David Ball. And there's a reason why places like Trojan Horse Method or Trial Lawyers College use psychodrama and use, you know, portions of acting and and those sorts of theater techniques as well incorporated into how you present a case because it is theater. And also because America has a love for the courtroom drama on NBC or ABC at 7 Central, they want to see that in an actual courtroom. They want to see a show, right? You have to keep them engaged. The average person has a attention span now of like 8.2 seconds, and then they're on to the next thing. So you have to keep them engaged and entertained. And so a lot of this is, is theater, but it's important theater because you have a case to prove. And you can use some of these techniques and use some of this sort of theatrical flair to really prove legally what you need to prove in the end and then show the jury those jury instructions at the end and explain why the defense expert is not a credible witness. There's some other techniques out there that I've seen from people, you know, obviously smarter and more successful than either of us that I kind of want to share. There's a concept called negative spacing that I I, I experienced before I knew exactly what it was. It's the negative spacing term I heard coined by uh, Rex Paris and, and his firm out in California. And what that really is, is a technique for deposing the expert. And again, take it, I I would defer obviously to to him and his firm and and their expertise in this area. But the technique basically involves, you know, having your list of all of the documents and all of the people that are involved in your case. And especially if you've got a big injury case, that's going to be a a very long list. You're going to have a long list of witnesses. You're going to have a long list of documents. And then just start going through them with the defense expert. You know, who is you know, ex physical therapist, who is ex attending physician, who is ex psychologist, who is ex psychiatrist, who is ex orthopedic surgeon, and just go through them by name and then see who this person actually can remember and recall without looking at their notes. That's awesome. And and, and the reason this is going to be an effective technique for you is because, you know, by the time this expert gets on the stand, the jury is going to have heard all the evidence, basically, because usually the defense expert is going to go on last or close to it. So they're going to have heard from your client. They're going to hear from your client's family, friends, coworkers, treating physicians, your experts, you know, basically everybody involved in the case. And they're going to know who all these people are. And if you're able to show that this defense expert was, you know, such skimmed the records in such a way and skim the depositions in such a way that he doesn't know who your client's attending physician is by name. He doesn't know who your client's orthopedic surgeon is by name. He doesn't know who your client's family is by name, you know, or his brother is, is, you know, the sister, all of that stuff. It's going to show 
how little they care about this situation. And they were paid thousands and thousands of dollars. And yet they know, you know, the bare minimum as far as facts about the case. And, you know, again, those jurors having been in the courtroom for, you know, three, five, seven, 10, 15 days, however long your trial's going, you know, they're going to, they're going to know all of this information and they're just going to be absolutely blown away by the fact that this expert who's being paid more than they, you know, a hundred times, thousands of times more than they have to be there. You know, they, they know nothing comparatively. And, and it really can be a devastating kind of thing. So that that's something that has been advocated. I, I had it done to me once. I haven't done it to anybody. And I can tell you, it was, it was extremely frustrating as a person defending a DEP with an expert. And, you know, the, my expert kept asking to refer to his notes about, you know, who was who. And they kept saying, no, no, just, t- just tell me, you know, you're the expert here. You know, you tell me who these people are. And, you know, I guess unsurprised in the case resolved afterwards, but you know, I th- really think it could be an effective tool of trial. And, you know, you, you can ask the parish firm about how, you know, how it's worked for them because the proof's in the pudding with them. I love it. I absolutely love it, especially because I'm coming to find more and more that a lot of these defense experts rely on a team, a team of, you know, people to summarize the medical records or the, do abstract the depositions for them. And I know we do a lot of that, right? If we're getting ready for trial, we summarize the records and we abstract the depths and everything else. But if you're the expert and all you read was an abstract of a deposition, you're essentially just reading hearsay. You're reading somebody else's interpretation of it. And so, you know, you can use this sort of technique to really hammer home. You never really even read these records. You don't know what, who this person is or what they are because they're not relying on the actual text. And it, I think this is a better technique than calling them out on, you had somebody summarize this for you. Well, a lot of jurors are going to look at that and say, well, yeah, it's a lot of information. Maybe they did. But the alternative is you never even bothered to read it. You don't know what it is. You have no idea who that person is. Are you kidding me? The incredulity you can express because it is, you know, it's ridiculous. is awesome. That's an awesome technique. The first time you told me about that, like my, it just blew my mind. I think it's fantastic. I'm excited to uh, use it in the future. I'm sure to many, many objections. Absolutely. Without question. Another kind of more general technique is keep experts off their report and out of their comfort zone. You know, they obviously know what they're going to, what they have been paid and retained to testify about. You know, they have their version of what happened, however limited that may be. You know, so ask them about things that they don't know, may not know, or wouldn't recall. You know, ask them about their knowledge of, you know, what the plaintiff was like, what their activities were you know, about their family, you know, what their, what their wife's name is, you know, what their sister's name is, how many steps are in their house, you know, what kind of car do they drive? You know, all, all of these different kinds of questions that will expose again, how unfamiliar they are with this person, their life and the injuries that they're being paid to testify about. So just, you know, I think that's, can be a very effective technique as well. You know, it gets them out of their comfort zone. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be shy. They're, they're not going to be within what, what they feel like they were there to talk about. And I really feel like, again, they can expose these experts for who they are and really do a, a really nice job for your client and a service to them. And that's going to be it for our episode today. Uh, but before we wrap up, we want to give you our 30-second trial tip. One thing we do to make our cases stronger and our trials better. John, what's yours for the week? As we're talking about experts, I'm stealing mine from a lawyer in California who I know and respect and think is fantastic. His name's Bob Simon, Simon Law Group. He says, while you're sitting on the couch at night watching Netflix or you're watching a game or you're doing whatever, pick up your phone and Google the defense expert's name with fraud in quotes or lied or lawsuit or any negative term that you can think of. And just do this for a half an hour to an hour and see what pops up and save the news articles, save anything that's in the public record to a file that's separate and have it and go comb through it later. You don't need to sit there and do the research and read, just find the, the bits and pieces and collect them all in one place. And then later, as you're preparing for the deposition, you will have all of this information, should it exist, and it'll be very, very beneficial. And it'll, it'll create a very effective portion of a cross for you. Well, that's a great point. Mine for the week is something I was literally talking about earlier today. Don't desensitize the jury to your client's injuries. 
And, and you can do that in a number of ways. A lot of times, you know, I do a lot of nursing home cases. You get a picture of a bed sore. You don't want to keep that up the whole time because after a few days of looking at that, even though it is shocking to see, especially for someone who hasn't seen something like that before, uh, you keep that up for a couple of days and all of a sudden it just, it's part of, you know, the process, the aging process, the dying process. And that's the last thing you want to do for your client. Same if your client has a very visible injury, you may not necessarily want to have them there the whole trial. You know, you maybe want to have them come for opening, closing, you know, have them testify and keep them out of the courtroom the rest of the time, because you want to keep that shock value. You want to make sure that the jury isn't desensitized and has become so used to your client's injuries that by the time they need to make their verdict, you know, it's, everything is kind of, you know, familiar to them, you know, keep that Keep it fresh and make sure that the jury obviously is aware of the full extent of the injuries, but don't overdo it. Don't overplay whatever visual evidence you have of the injuries so much that uh, they become desensitized to it. Especially if they're those catastrophic injuries like you're talking about, because you don't want them to devalue those in any way because they are absolutely tragic. And with that, that's going to be our episode for today. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at On Trial Podcast. Please also rate us and leave your feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts as it helps us get the word out. Until next time, we'll see you on trial.